Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, what does a wave of military coups in the Sahel mean for the security of the region and the war against jihadi groups in West Africa? In my opinion, the war ahead is going to be tougher and longer. French government has to take now a decision about the presence of French troops in Mali. Later in the show, we're talking to a researcher who studies the discrimination people that speak English with foreign accents face and ways to possibly reduce that. It teaches us that we all should be aware of the fact that we're probably discriminating against non-ID speakers without knowing that. I'm Gemma Ware in London. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. On the 24th of January, the military seized power in Burkina Faso in a coup d'etat. Following Monday's coup, Lieutenant Colonel Paul-Henri Damiba made his first address to the nation, calling on all to unite and take up arms against arms. Hundreds of people took to the streets of Ouagadougou, the capital of Burkina Faso, to welcome the ousting of President Roche Kabore. More than a thousand people gathered in Burkina Faso's capital on Tuesday to cheer in their new military rulers. The coup in Burkina Faso is the latest in a spate of military takeovers in the Sahel region across West and Central Africa. Over the past 18 months, generals have taken power in Mali, in Guinea, and then most recently in Burkina Faso. For most of the past decade, many of the militaries behind these coups have been battling jihadi insurgency groups in the Sahel. The French army, and more recently the European Union, are also heavily involved in this war against Islamist groups. The war in the Sahel is getting more and more violent. According to the Africa Centre for Strategic Studies, the number of attacks increased 70% between 2020 and 2021. An estimated 2.4 million people have been displaced and thousands killed. There are also serious concerns that attacks could spread to neighbouring countries too. But the military coups have seriously damaged the relationship between foreign intervention forces, particularly the French, and their African military partners. And this week, France announced it was withdrawing its troops from Mali. In this episode, I've been talking to three experts about what the coups mean for the security situation in the Sahel and for the future of French intervention in the region. We're going to begin in Mali. In late August 2020, a military junta seized power in Mali from President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita. A civilian transitional government emerged which promised to hold elections. But nine months later, in May 2021, a second coup d'etat took place. Who within a coup? The head of the military junta that ousted Mali's president last year does it again. There's international backlash against the seizing of power by interim vice president Colonel Asimi Goita. Mali had already been suspended from the African Union after the first coup, and in early January 2022, the Economic Community of West African States, known as ECOWAS, imposed sanctions on Mali for abandoning plans to hold elections in February. So what's the situation on the ground right now? My name is Madi Ibrahim Kante. Madi is a lecturer in geopolitics at the University of Legal and Political Sciences of Bamako in Mali and a temporary lecturer in counterterrorism at the École de Maintien de la Paix à Lyon Blondibi, also in Bamako. I spoke to him in French and so in what's a first for this podcast, my co-producer Mend Marawani has voiced over Madi's answers. Quelle est la situation aujourd'hui? What's the situation like in Mali right now? What's happening in, in different parts of the country? Écoutez, par rapport à... The current situation in Mali is complex. 
the country is under ECOWAS sanctions that have been in place for about a month. The sanctions mean a lot of activities are currently stopped in Mali, so both the Treasury and investors are having difficulty with bank transactions. The other side is the security situation. The Malian forces, the FAMA, are more or less leading the fight against the terrorist groups that currently exist in Mali, not only in the north, but also in the centre, and even in the west in a region called Caius. Caius and another region called Sikasso are regions where daily life hasn't been particularly badly affected by the terrorist activities, compared to the centre and the north. At the same time, the government is trying to see how to put forward a timetable for elections that must be organised by the transition government. The security situation in Mali is extremely complicated. Not only are the state forces battling the jihadi groups, some of these groups are actually fighting each other too. To find out more about the different Islamist groups and what the coups mean for the fight against them, I called up a second expert. My name is Fola Aina. Fola is a doctoral fellow at the African Leadership Centre at King's College London in the UK. A political scientist by training, his research is currently focusing on security and leadership in West Africa, including the Sahel. Can you help us understand a bit about the landscape of insecurity in the Sahel? Who are the Islamist and jihadist groups in the Sahel that countries are trying to fight and causing quite a lot of this insecurity? Okay, so there are a couple of jihadi groups in the Sahel. One of the biggest of these groups is the group popularly referred to, you know, as Jamaatul Nasr Islam Wal Muslimin, also known for short as Janim which basically operates around Mali, you know, and some other parts of the Sahel region. And then, of course, there are some other groups like the Islamic State in Greater Sahara, also referred to as ISGS. And then, of course, some other ones exist, such as Ansaru, which was the first breakaway faction of Boko Haram, which basically operates around Nigeria, Niger, Chad. And then, of course, again, there is another breakaway faction, also known as ISWAP which is the Islamic State in the West African um, province, which again mostly operates around the Chad Basin areas. So these are groups that have basically sought to entrench, if you like, a Sharia rule across the region and an Islamic caliphate and basically are trying to counter the effects you know, of democracy, trying to get people to adopt a different political ideology as a means of governance. And that is why amongst their operations, beyond just attacking government facilities and killing innocent civilians, they also have targeted approaches aimed at winning the hearts and minds of the local population. So some of the things they do, for instance, includes building mosques, also providing zakat. In Islam, zakat refers to charitable giving made by Muslims during the holy month of Ramadan. And they try to give these things to the most um, vulnerable, to the less privileged. And in some instances, they have also provided security, you know, for safe passage of goods and services. They've also provided some form of mediatory services in terms of conflicts, arbitrating conflicts that exist in local communities. So they have tried to fill in where the government has been absent, especially related to what we call um, ungoverned spaces. They've tried to take advantage and fill in these voids as quasi-states or alternative states to the mainstream states, as it were. What is it actually like for people living in the regions where these groups are, are fighting against the militaries? What is the security situation like for them and how is it impacting on their lives? So it's it's had a tremendous impact on their lives, particularly in the sense that most of the 
people who live in these local communities where they are being affected by insecurity are largely dependent on farming and agricultural related activities. So as a result of the insecurity in the region, it has made them practically almost un impossible for them to go to their farmlands, okay, for fear of being kidnapped or for fear of being killed. And so as a result of that, the direct implications has also been, uh, you know, a decline in the level or standard of their livelihoods. Have the region's militaries been successful in their attempts to fight against these groups? What is evidently clear is that the militaries in these regions, despite having limited um, resources in terms of equipment, manpower, have been able to wield a significant blow against these terrorist groups, Okay, which in many ways has pushed them back into hiding. But that's also not to say that these militaries haven't also themselves encountered casualties. In the last year or so, there have been a series of, of coups in West Africa, in the Sahel, two in Mali, one in Guinea, and, and most, most recently in Burkina Faso. Is there a relationship, do you think, between the fact that these coups have happened mainly in countries where there is an Islamist insurgency? Oh, yes, there is a relationship, one that's still you know unfolding in many ways. And the reason why is because the insurgency, in many ways, has revealed the fragility of these states and the incapacities of the state's institutions, particularly its coercive apparatus, to mitigate the threat posed by Islamic extremism on the one hand, and also on the other hand, the ability of the state to provide public goods that help to mitigate the rise of Islamism in the first instance. And based on the fact that the state in itself is weakened and it remains fragile, and it's resulting in its inability to provide protection and security for its society or citizens, the military have capitalized on this vacuum, this gap, hence the reason why they have staged military coups. So having established this correction, we can see that as long as jihadism remains prevalent across the region, there's every tendency for the military to use this as a justification for acquiring and seizing political power under the guise of being guardians of the state. Okay, what have the coup leaders been saying about continuing this fight against the Islamist insurgencies? A lot of these military leaders or rulers have complained in the past about cases where they feel like the political elite, okay, or the democratically elected leaders haven't paid enough attention to their plight as um, military professionals with regards to fighting um, jihadism in, in, in the region. The military in Burkina Faso in particular had accused the civilian leaders of not properly equipping them with the right tools to fight these terrorist groups. And so not being able to fight this kind of asymmetric warfare is in many ways appears to be like a blight on their own capacity. And so you can imagine from a professional point of view, that it makes them look incompetent. And that is why they have had this animosity and this enchantment towards civilian leaders whom they consider to be enablers as a result of their endemic corruption. And so they're now saying, as they've come to power, that they will continue the fight and really beat back the insurgencies. Is that right? Yes, that's what they're saying. But there's a problem with that. Because of the fact that the military are trained to yield force. Whereas the problems with Islamic militancy or insurgency is one that requires a multifaceted approach, not necessarily an over-militarization of the process. Because when you look at the root causes that have led to the 
um, emergence of insecurity in the first instance, a lot of it have their roots in socioeconomic grievances, okay? High levels of inequality, poverty, illiteracy, lack of jobs, and all of that. So the military junta's approach would be one that simply emphasizes the use of force while neglecting the need to address these socioeconomic factors. And if these factors remain unaddressed, no matter how hard or how long you record any successes in fighting these jihadi groups, they are bound to be new ones re-emerging. That's where the problem is. So we shouldn't expect to see the military juntas make any much of a difference because they aren't necessarily trained as development experts or economists. Do they have any advantages, though, that a democratic government might not have? To be honest, I would say that they have more of a disadvantage than an advantage. So take, for instance, the U.S. Leahy Law, which basically seeks to forbid the sale of arms to countries that have had records of human rights abuses. Now, some of the militaries in the region have been accused of extrajudicial killings. And based on the fact that we're going to be seeing would very likely be the use of more force, these situations um, associated with extrajudicial killings might also be on the increase, meaning that they would have a likely tendency to be ostracized by the US or other international partners who will be less reluctant to provide them with the kind of arms and equipment required to fight these insurgent groups that they so much desire to fight. Broadly, what do you think this wave of coups in the Sahel means for the security of the wider region? So I think the immediate signal that has been conveyed here is to expect more of a militaristic approach to how jihadism is being fought in the region, which has a direct implication for rather than degrading, dismantling and destroying these jihadi groups, on the other hand, would likely have a counterproductive effect, which in itself would rather than anything further embolden these jihadi groups and push them towards conversions and seeking ways to harmonize their efforts, routing these military juntas, actually. So I guess, in my opinion, I guess the war ahead is going to be tougher and longer. When I spoke to Madi Ibrahim Kanti, he was more optimistic about how the Malian military junta is dealing with the country's security situation. He told me that since the end of January, as part of his research, he's been talking to a number of commanders in the Malian army around Timbuktu and Gao in the north and Mopti in the centre of the country. They've told me that FAMA, the Malian armed forces, are having some good results. FAMA is trying to completely destroy all the jihadi military bases in the centre and north of Mali. At the same time, they're also trying to neutralise the leaders of these terrorist groups. And the Malian forces have captured and imprisoned a lot of people. Right now, the army has been able to enter certain places that were considered zones under control of the terrorist groups. And when you've spoken to these military commanders, what's their morale like? The Malian government has made official declarations saying they've got all the equipment they need for the war. This is despite the fact that for a long time, the government lacked the necessary military resources and equipment. When I talk to the commanders on the ground, they confirm that they have no problems with equipment. They've also got the medical equipment they need in case of injury, or if they need to take the injured to Bamako or to specialist medical centres. Do you think that the reason why the army is now better equipped 
is because the army is now in charge of Mali. When you look at the first coup d'etat, it happened right after a popular uprising. But we were also hearing about corruption in the army, that lots of money destined to buy military equipment has been siphoned off, which unfortunately meant that, as one soldier explained, we didn't even have enough munition to fight the battle on the front lines. I think that was part of the reason for the coup d'etat in 2020. Mali's military have not been fighting this battle against jihadis alone. But now the coups are shaking up the region's security partnerships, particularly with France. The French intervention in Mali began nine years ago, in 2013, with the launch of Operation Serval. France carried out dozens of airstrikes on Islamist positions and deployed up to 3,500 soldiers. That intervention aim was actually to uh, prevent the jihadi armed groups to uh, take over Bamako, the capital of Mali. This is Thierry Vercoulon, the third expert I've been speaking to. Thierry is a researcher at the University of Paris and also an associate research fellow at the French Institute of International Affairs think tank. France launched Operation Serval at the request of the Malian government in its battle against an Islamist insurgency. And after that successful intervention, the French government decided to launch a full-scale counter-terrorism operation, not only in Mali but in the Sahel, and that was that Operation Isbarkan. And so who has been cooperating with France? Who have their allies been in this period of Operation Bakan? It's, uh, of course, the, the local armies of the uh, countries that are uh, involved in that counter-terrorism war. There are five countries. They are part of the coalition, the security coalition called the G5 Sahel. Those uh, local armies are the Mali, Niger, Chad, Burkina Faso and Mauritania. So uh, they are uh, cooperating uh, with the French army and uh, the United States uh, army also is involved. They are providing a significant amount of intelligence to the French forces. How has France's strategy changed since President Emmanuel Macron came to power in 2017? So he obviously inherited this mission in, in the Sahel. What has his approach been to it and what's changed under him? If we look at the, the number of the troops that have been deployed there, there's been a, a rise during uh, President Macron. The mission started with 3,000 troops and then went up to uh, 5,000 troops. But last year, President Macron announced that he will downsize the mission by half. There was a recognition of the fact that the mission couldn't last forever. It's been eight years now, and uh, there's a financial and human cost to that mission for Paris. 58 uh, French militaries have been killed uh, since the beginning of the mission, and uh, the cost is one billion per year. Therefore, um, there is a recognition that uh, this uh, has to change, and uh, Paris can't continue forever to be involved in that war. And he's also tried to Europeanize the mission in some way as well. First, uh, the, the mission was Europeanized from the start because the European Union deployed in Mali a training mission called the EUTM in order to train the Malian army and make it operational again. But in addition to this training mission, there was the idea to deploy European Special Forces that will actually support the local army's operation. Uh, that uh, EU task force uh, is called Takuba. And uh, the idea, of course, from Paris was uh, 
to involve more the European militaries in that fight. But at this stage, this has actually not worked well at all. And have there been any people who've been opposed to this French presence in the region? At the beginning, there was actually uh, no opposition. The French military intervention was called in by the Italian government, and the whole operation was diplomatically supported by the various African countries in the region. Now, over the times, the situation has uh, changed very much, and the acceptance of the Barkhane counterterrorism operation has dramatically changed. Firstly, there has been protests by the population of various countries who are now, I think, in, in their majority opposed to the French military presence. Tell us about this convoy, because this is quite an, a stark example of the animosity. Tell us what happened in that case. Yeah, at the end of um, last year, in November 2021, a French military convoy was blocked in Burkina Faso by the uh, local population who opposed uh, the French military presence. And that convoy was uh, supposed to go to French military base in Mali. And so he couldn't reach Mali. Uh, he was blocked in Burkina Faso. He went back to Niger, and in Niger, he was blocked again by the local population. And there were a few people who were uh, killed during a demonstration. It's still unclear if they were killed by French soldiers or by uh, the local forces. And therefore, what happened with that convoy was a clear sign of the rejection by the local population of the French military presence. Madi Ibrahim Kante has heard evidence of this animosity firsthand on a number of trips to the north of Mali over the past few years. Since 2013, I've been north a couple of times trying to do research for NGOs or for research centres. When I asked questions about the French forces present in the north of Mali, the local people said that the military forces are there for nothing, not for them. Why? Because a number of villages have been completely destroyed by the terrorists that were not very far from military bases whether that's a French military base from Operation Barkhane or one from the G5 Sahel Force. They haven't been able to protect the population. Also, we had Takuba, the European Union force, which came at France's request to make a united European effort in the fight against terrorism. When Takuba began in 2020, I went once to Gao and Meneka and couldn't see any concrete and visible results on the ground. What we call the anti-French protests are in reality not just anti-French protests, but the population has seen there haven't been results for eight years of war against terrorism. And the terrorists have got closer to Bamako. People are trying to live with the situation, but they've started to ask whether France is there to protect them, to fight terrorism or for something else. It's that which led to the protests against Ibrahim Boubacar Kaita, the former president. People said they weren't okay with his politics and with the forces on the ground who haven't managed to overcome terrorism. And so we've arrived at the coup d'etat, which have completely upset the situation. I asked Thierry Coulon what impact he thought the recent wave of coup d'état has had on France's military strategy in the Sahel. Those coups uh, are very uh, problematic because, of course, they question the political legitimacy of the security partnership between Paris and Mali and Burkina Faso. And they, of course, create also some uh, diplomatic tensions between Paris and those uh, military governments because 
Paris was forced to disavow those coups and condemn them publicly because they actually overthrew elected presidents and therefore it's creating tension between the allied. There's been a, a war of words uh, between Lamaco and Paris uh, for the past uh, few months. The um, Malian authorities have uh, accused uh, Paris to uh, let them down when President Macron announced the downsizing of the Barkhane mission. And now uh, they have rejected the Takuba presence. Paris has uh, not yet agreed on the appointment of a Mali ambassador. And uh, the retaliation by the Malian government was to expel the French ambassador. So I think we reached now a point of no return. There's also a UN mission in Mali. So what would happen, do you think, if the French troops are pushed out, as you predict they will be, both to the UN, to the security situation? What does it mean for Mali? For the UN, it won't mean much, but it will mean uh, a lot for uh, the European Union. They will have to also leave the country. Now the whole Takuba mission is called into question. The UN mission will stay there, but of course the UN mission is very worried about its own security because the presence of the French forces was, of course, helping to contain, in a way, to some extent, the attacks of the armed groups and GAD groups. And therefore, when they won't be operating in Mali anymore, the UN peacekeepers fear to be the new target those jihadi groups. Do you think it will leave a vacuum that the jihadi groups will flow into? What will the situation be like if they do all leave? There will definitely be a, a deterioration of the security situation, not only in Mali, but also for the neighboring countries of Mali. Recently, there's been an attack in northern Benin. And we'll see who will be the other alternative security partners of the Mali government because he's gonna, he has already made a deal with the Wagner mercenary group. And he may also try to bring in some other security partners to help him because the military regime knows that the security situation is very fragile in the country. The Wagner Group is a Russian private military company which has been involved in conflicts in Syria, Ukraine, Libya and the Central African Republic. Its mercenaries have been accused of committing grave human rights abuses and late last year the group was sanctioned by the European Union. And its allies are condemning the use of Russian mercenary soldiers in Mali. The French Foreign Ministry says it knows the Russian government is providing, quote, material support. In January, the US Army said Wagner mercenaries were already present in Mali. France's foreign minister, Jean-Yves Le Drian, then accused the Wagner Group of plundering Mali's resources. But Mali's army has denied working with the group and insists its cooperation is directly with the Russian state. Mari Ibrahim Kante told me he thought statements by the US and the French that Wagner mercenaries were present in Mali weren't proof enough. We don't have concrete proof that Mali has signed a contract with Wagner or that Wagner mercenaries are on the ground in Mali. And what you're saying is that the military generals in charge of Mali would prefer to have a relationship with the Russian state rather than with mercenaries, is that? Yes, I think so. I've spoken to a few people in the Malian administration who questioned why we would go with Wagner if the Russian state is ready to collaborate with us against terrorism. 
Why would we decide to partner with Wagner, which could pose problems for our relationship with, with other states and even the international community? For his part, Thierry says there is clear evidence that Wagner mercenaries are present in Mali. It's very clear that they are not Russian troops. Therefore, they are Wagner. Thierry is concerned that the violence and insecurity in the region could be about to get a lot worse. We've seen attacks in uh, northern Benin, uh, etc. Uh, indeed, uh, for several years now, the conflict is expanding and it's also uh, becoming more and more complicated with more and entrepreneurs of violence with very uh, different backgrounds. And we see that it's not only one conflict and it's not only a counter-terrorism war, it's also a civil war. It's also war for a, con a conflict uh, resource. And it's also uh, a war between uh, trafficking networks. So the uh, conflict landscape is becoming increasingly complicated and difficult to understand. And uh, that's why uh, the, the security situation is uh, deteriorating at the regional level. Thinking about what this means for France, there's a presidential election happening in France in April, just in a couple of, of weeks, really. The campaign is ramping up. Macron is seeking uh, a, a second term. How much is this situation in the Sahel being discussed as part of the French election campaign? There is uh, definitely a political debate about Barkhane. When you look at the positions of the various political parties in the electoral campaign, you can see that basically the left-wing parties want to end that military involvement and the right-wing parties wants to continue that military involvement. But what is common to both the left-wing and the right-wing parties is that they all want to exploit the strategic mistakes of President Macron it's pretty clear that the French government has to take now a decision about the presence of French troops in Mali. But as we said, uh, we are in the middle of the electoral campaign. So such a decision is very difficult to take because it will be used by its political opponents in Paris. On February the 17th, the French government took that decision. Emmanuel Macron announced that France would start to withdraw its troops from Mali in a process that would take about four to six months. The European Union also announced it would withdraw its Takuba task force from Mali and that Niger had agreed to take some of the European troops. Macron insisted that this meant the intervention in Mali had not been a failure. But the future of Europe's military presence in the region clearly now hangs in the balance. I asked Madi a final question about how these military coups might change the long-term relationship between France and the countries in the Sahel. For that to happen, he said France needs to completely change its foreign policy towards African countries, and Mali and Guinea in particular. The old generations in West Africa and the Sahel, they could accept a lot. But now, young Africans have a completely different mentality. In Mali, when I listen to people, and the young people in particular, they say, we can cooperate with any country in the world, but we will no longer accept these countries dictating their rules to us. So I think if France tried to change its politics towards these countries in the Sahel, the relationship could be re-established on a new base that's completely different to what it was under colonization or as an ex-French colony. It would need to be a win-win and a collaboration with respect on both sides. I think that's what could change things.
You've been listening to Maddie Ibrahim Kante, Thierry Verkolon, and Fola Aina. You can read more analysis from each of them on the conversation. We'll put some links to their pieces in the show notes. So as we've just been hearing, on The Conversation Weekly, we don't shy away from interviewing academics for whom English is not their first language. We certainly do not. And that's one of the joys of this job, actually, talking to people from all over the world. But people who speak English with foreign accents often face discrimination from native English speakers as they go about their lives. I've been talking to an Israeli researcher based in the UK who's been researching why this discrimination happens. And she's been running some experiments to find ways to reduce the bias against non-native speakers. So I'm Shiri Levery. I'm a lecturer of psychology at Royal Holloway University of London, and I study language from a social perspective. So I really care about how the social world influences how we process language and how we use language. And we're talking to you today about accents uh, and people with accents and the way they're understood. So give us some background here. So first of all, one thing that is important for everyone to understand is that everyone has an accent. If you think you don't have an accent, it just means that you have the privileged accent and therefore people see it as the normative one, but you're also accented. There's no such thing as people without an accent. But what I'm mostly interested in is really foreign accent. So foreign accent is different because foreign accent is really influenced by the fact that you were born learning a different language. And every language has different sounds. And when we start learning language, we basically learn not just to become better at our own language, but one way to become better at our own language is to learn to ignore things that are not important for our language. Can you give me an example? Yeah, of course. So one really nice study that was done not by me, um, they looked at infants at different time points. So they tried to see whether infants acquiring different languages can tell differences, for example, between different sounds in Hindi that don't exist in English. And what they find is that if you test the infants at three months old, they can do that. But if you test them at one year old, they can no longer do that. But of course, if you test um, infants learning Hindi, yes, they can. So in a sense, initially, we're all born with the ability to tell all the differences between all the different sounds in the world. But then we learn to attend only to the sounds in our own languages and ignore the sounds that are not relevant for our languages because that can actually be confusing. And maybe in our language, those differences don't matter. But that means that later on, when we need to learn such a language that has distinctions that our language doesn't have, it's really difficult to learn to attend to things that you spent, you know, your early childhood learning to ignore. Um, and many of us can actually never do that. So people think that, oh, people will just be able to um, overcome their accent and become native lung if they'll just try hard enough. But that's actually not true. Most of the people in the world are incapable of really sounding native-like in another language. They might be able to reduce to some degree the accent, but much of it will retain because it just reflects what they learned about their own language. The question you're asking then about this is, what does this mean for that person who learns another language and speaks with a foreign accent? Yes, I think, so there's a lot of literature about um, discrimination, right? And we know that people do discriminate against non-native speakers. So there are studies, um, not so much conducted by me, but some of them show that, for example, if people hear different recordings of people interviewing or applying for jobs, and the text is precisely the same, or the CV is precisely the same, but they just hear one recording with a native accent and one recording with a non-native accent, when they need to make hiring decisions, 
they prefer the native ones compared to the non-native ones. So that supposedly also translates to real life in terms of hiring decisions. Um, it's true in terms of different studies that participants just heard um, recordings of salespeople trying to sell different things and they find the non-native speaker ones less knowledgeable, less convincing, even though the text is the same. So they show the same knowledge, but just because they speak with an accent, people think they're less knowledgeable and less convincing and less likely to buy the product. And much of this discrimination is really about prejudice. But I was wondering whether there are other reasons that are not about prejudice that also lead to discrimination. And the reason I was thinking about that is that there's some literature that shows that when something is hard to understand, so just hard to process, so even if you understand it, but you need to put more effort into it, people tend to trust it less. And well, it's harder to process accented speech. We do put in more times. And even if we understand it at the end, we needed to put in more effort in order to understand what someone is saying. But if we trust less, something that is harder than to understand, does that mean that we trust non-native speakers less? So that was the basic idea behind it. So you've been thinking about this for a while and you did an initial study a couple of years ago about how people discriminate based on accents. Tell us what you did. Yeah, so the first study really just tried to do, is it a case that people discriminate against non-native speakers? And not just because of prejudice, but really just because they find it harder to understand them. So the way to do that was to try to get the non-native speakers to be just messengers. So if they're just messengers delivering messages for someone else, whether or not you trust the non-native speakers should not influence whether or not you trust the message because they're just bringing a message from someone else. So for that study, we really just had people um, read aloud the previous statements that they were provided for them. They didn't know whether they were true or not. And participants were just told, you need to try to do your best to try to guess whether the statement is true or not. And this is really what we're testing you on. We're testing your ability to evaluate previous statements. Okay, so this is just a a general trivia statement. So what were you then trying to understand about how people reacted to that? So we wanted to see whether they're going to believe a statement more if they hear it from a native speaker compared to a non-native speaker. So every statement was, um, some people heard it said in a native accent and some people heard it in a non-native accent. And we had a variety of different accents. So one person would hear it in a Korean accent, another one would hear it in an Italian accent, another one would hear it in a Turkish accent and so forth. And basically what we found is that people really believe the statements more when they heard them in a native accent compared to a non-native accent. So that was the initial study. Um, what we try to do now, and I should say when I say we, uh, this latest study was actually the master's project of Cassia Grapka, so she conducted it. And what we try to do is to see whether we can actually reduce the bias. Because if the problem is really not prejudice, like we say, but just difficulty of understanding the speech, can we just make it easier to understand the speech and that way also make people believe more what non-native speakers say. Okay, so you had this idea that you wanted to try and alleviate the discrimination that you were seeing in this first experiment. So what did you do in this this new one? Yeah, so we really know that one of the best way to get um, to become better at understanding accented speech is exposure to accented speech. So maybe even over the last few minutes, as you were hearing me, you became, you started finding it easier to understand my accent. And the idea is that the more we hear someone, it just becomes easier to understand them. So we thought, okay, let's try to see what happens if we choose a specific accent. And in this case, we chose Polish accented speech. 
And for half of the participants, we'll just get them used to hearing Polish accented speech. So we just play to them different stories by Polish accented speakers, and they just answered comprehension questions about them. They had nothing to do with the trivia statements later on. And the other half of the participants heard the same stories, but they were told by native speakers of English, so no exposure to accent. And at the end, everyone did the exact same trivia task, so they just heard statements either by Polish-accented speakers or English-accented speakers, of course, whatever one person heard in English, the other person heard in Polish accent. And again, they just tried to rate them and decide how likely are these to be true. And what we find is, first of all, unfortunately, everyone showed a bias. So everyone believed more the statements when they were in native accent compared to Polish accented speech. But we did manage to reduce the bias. So we didn't make it go away. But those who were previously exposed to the Polish accented stories showed smaller bias. And I should say, our entire exposure was 10-15 minutes. So hopefully in the real world, if you give a more meaningful and long um, exposure, the effect can also be bigger and we can reduce it even more. So what does this teach us more generally? First of all, I think it teaches us that we all, again, should be aware of the fact that we're probably discriminating against non-native speakers without knowing that. And I should say it's not only native speakers who discriminate against non-native speakers. Non-native speakers also find it harder to understand accented speech as long as it's not the same accent as them. And they also show the same bias. So actually, non-native speakers find other foreign accents even harder unless... It's the same one. So the Urdu speaker will actually find other Urdu-accented speakers easier. So we should all be aware of the fact that we actually discriminate against non-native speakers, even if we're not prejudiced, just because we find it hard to understand. The only difference is that we might find cross-culturally, it's just in terms of exposure. So um, if you grow up in a place that is very uh, multicultural with a lot of people coming from all over, you might be more used to understanding accent and therefore find it less hard compared to if you're in a place that is more isolated. Where else does this kind of research lead you and in what directions are you now looking? Yeah, so I was starting to think about um, the consequences for the judicial system. So what happens, for example, if you're in a trial and you hear a testimony in a case of negligence or reckless behavior, and you hear the testimony um, said in a non-native speech compared to native speech, are you going to find the behavior more reckless? Are you going to therefore punish the, um, the person more? So I guess the courtroom is a case where those biases become even more acute. If you could give somebody some advice on what they could do to try and reduce their discrimination, what would you say? So I would say that it would be good if they try to either interact with different non-native speakers or just be exposed to different resources from non-native speakers. And the more different people you interact with, the better you become. So interacting with just one non-native speaker is useful, but interacting with two or three will help you even more with understanding different others. And if you're also exposed to different types of foreign accents, that can also help you with understanding foreign accents that you haven't heard before. So it's not that you have to hear and get used to all hundred possible um, foreign accents you might experience in your city. But if you start exposing yourself to already 10 of them, and there are different ones, your odds are that you'll be better even with the other ones. Then if we make sure that, I don't know, people who work a lot with non-native speakers have as part of their training exposure to foreign accent, or if we create workplaces that are more diverse and have um, also non-native speakers from multiple locations, all these should actually reduce the bias. So I think diversity is the way forward. 
Okay, that's great advice. Thank you very much, Sherry. Shiri Lev Ari there from Royal Holloway University of London. We'll put a link to her research in the show notes. Elsewhere on the conversation this week, we've been delving into the ethical questions raised by eating meat. Here's Jack Marley. Hello, this is Jack. I'm an environment editor at The Conversation, and I'm based in Newcastle, England. I've been vegetarian for about seven years now. But a film I saw recently gave me the push I needed to finally go vegan. Or at least try to. That film was Andrea Arnold's Cow. It's a documentary which follows the life of a dairy cow on a British farm. Joe Wills, a lecturer in law at the University of Leicester, has seen this film too. And he writes about how the film exposes the limits of welfare standards in protecting the interests of animals raised for food. He says it urges a new understanding of non-humans as deserving of fundamental rights, akin to those enjoyed by people. Do you remember the first time you realised the meat on your plate came from an animal? The experience can be disturbing for lots of children, but psychologists Sarah Gradage and Magdalena Zavisha at Anglia Ruskin University argue that a lot of our mental effort as adults can go into obscuring this fact. In a recent story, they write about something they call the meat paradox and how our minds intentionally disengage from the realities of meat eating in order to reconcile our love for animals with our appetite for meat. Farming cows for beef is the leading cause of deforestation within agriculture. Most people could afford to eat less meat for the sake of the planet, but doing so can often feel like a lonely protest. Agricultural subsidies, the public money that governments pay farmers to support food production, might offer a more fruitful target for reform. In another recent article, Marco Springman, a senior researcher in Oxford University's Future of Food programme, explained how every fifth dollar of subsidies worldwide goes towards raising meat, while healthier and sustainable crops like fruit, vegetables and legumes are neglected. Reversing this dynamic could create a greener, healthier and more humane global food system, he said. Jack Marley there in Newcastle, England. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. And thanks to the conversation editors, Adajewan Soyinka, Gregory Reiko, Wale Fatade, Melissa Jacobs and Stephen Kahn. And thanks to Alice Mason for our social media promotion and Katie Francis for help with our transcripts. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com or email us podcast at theconversation.com. And don't forget to sign up for our free daily email. Just click the link in the show notes. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and my wonderful co-host, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sorrell. And that's been Dan Marino. Thanks for listening.